All right, Nick. So we're done with our boards and uh, Kriogs are over for this year. But, you know, what do we do if we want to keep making sure that we're up to date on the most current OBGYN practices? Yeah, as we get this podcast together every week, we have to always think about our friends over at the OBG Project who have these amazing summaries that are updated every day of the week, encompassing the latest research, encompassing newest practices, um, and also posting things like Grand Rounds where they get into the controversies of modern obstetric and gynecologic practice. And for all you residents out there, they also have a great core curriculum for you to study from. Um, we know that you probably want to break after Creongs, but definitely something to, worth checking out. And for all you chief residents out there, you can get one year subscription to OBG First absolutely free. Head over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar. Chiefs, find out how you can get OBG First absolutely free. And residents, get signed up for the core curriculum. All right, everybody, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. All right, so today on the podcast, we are going to talk about post-placental IUD insertion. And I know we don't typically talk about procedure type of things on the podcast, but I think this is a really exciting thing to talk about. And joining us for that is uh, Dr. Sarah Prager. Dr. Prager is a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology in the Division of Complex Family Planning at my place, the University of Washington. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Dr. Prager. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you both. So Dr. Prager, before we get started, um, you know, we always talk about some of our learning objectives for today. So what are you, know, you hoping that um, our listeners take away after today's podcast? The first thing that I'm hoping people take away is more enthusiasm for placing IUDs immediately in the postpartum period and understanding actually that that has a slightly more expanded definition than a lot of people are aware. And then I guess, secondly, my take-home message that I will reinforce later also is that as with so many things, we get better at doing this with practice. And we think about expulsion rates as being really high in the immediate postpartum period. This also gets lower with more and more experience. So having an expulsion shouldn't mean stop trying to do it. Wonderful. Well, I can't wait to talk more about it. But Dr. Perry, let's start with kind of some of the basic definition things of what we'll get into today, because you mentioned sort of that immediate versus delayed. What exactly does that mean? The first time period that we think about would be the immediate post-placental insertion, and that's really within 10 minutes of the placental extraction after delivery. But the immediate postpartum insertion really refers to that 10 minutes after the placenta comes out for a full 48 hours after delivery. And any time within then is also totally an appropriate time to put an IUD in. Then a delayed postpartum insertion would be 48 hours to say six or eight weeks after delivery when somebody is going to come back for a postpartum check. And then after that would be an interval placement that is you know, remote for, or not related to a delivery. And then also just to note, a trans cesarean insertion would be an IUD inserted at the time of a cesarean delivery through the hysterotomy. 
So we used to put these in a lot in residency, um, and we still do here in fellowship. But um, remind us, Dr. Prager, what are some of the reasons why you shouldn't put in, for example, an immediate um, postpartum IUD? Yeah, almost everybody is a candidate. I would say that the reason that gets overlooked the most probably is prolonged rupture of membranes. And this comes up a lot when we're running our board for board sign out, and we will make a note if somebody wants a a post-placental or a postpartum IUD, it often doesn't get changed even if that person now has a rupture of membrane longer than 18 to 24 hours. And really, we shouldn't be putting in IUDs in the first probably four to six weeks if somebody has had that prolonged rupture of membranes. We don't actually know at what point it would be safe after that, but shouldn't be done in the first 48 hours at any rate. So any sign of infection or chorioamnionitis, any uterine infection would preclude somebody from getting a a postpartum IUD. And then also if somebody is having excessive unresolved bleeding or has extensive genital trauma, or I would say uterine trauma at the time of a cesarean delivery, it might not be appropriate to proceed with the IUD insertion at that time. And kind of from there, Dr. Prager, with your initial thought on definitions, and sorry to jump back to it, but I remember kind of almost being drilled into me in residency that like, you got to get it in in 10 minutes. And if it's not in in 10 minutes, it's going to come back out. Is there truth to that? Or what should we be really taking away? Thanks for asking that question. The original studies looked at what happens in the first 10 minutes, and then there was no data until 48 hours or later. So we had really this gap. And studies have consistently shown that the expulsion rate with a post-placental IUD, so in the first 10 minutes, is about 10%, which is certainly higher than an interval insertion, but it's not astronomically high. And it, if wait, excuse me, if waiting until after 48 hours, it can be as high as 25, 30% varying from different studies. We originally had somewhat limited data on that 10 minutes to 48 hour window. There is a pilot study that was conducted in Zambia, and it actually showed a 4% expulsion rate with what they call morning after delivery IUD insertion. So that could be anywhere from a couple of hours to about 24 hours. And so that's even lower than that immediate post-placental rate of 10%. And as I mentioned before, provider experience matters. So in one of those early studies that was actually published in 1985 out of China, it showed that providers cut their expulsion rates almost in half just in the second six months of doing this as compared to the first six months. So it really will get lower with time. So don't get discouraged. If patients are still wanting this, please consider still doing it. Let's switch gears a little bit. I wanted to ask, you know, what data is out there talking about copper IUDs versus like the levonorgestrel IUDs in terms of insertion and postpartum? Most of the oldest data is coming from just the copper IUDs, mostly because that was before the levonorgestrel IUDs were available. And they also are still less available in some parts of the world where this Uh, has been more frequently studied in the past. So all the original studies are with various kinds of copper IUDs. We originally then conducted some studies in the U.S. with levonorgestrel IUDs with an N of about 50 or so, 
But now we have some more recent pool data um, that doesn't separate out IUDs, but is a majority of levonorgestrel IUDs. And it is um, still showing potentially higher expulsion rates with levonorgestrel IUDs as compared to copper. We don't really know why. And, and it could be due to different insertion techniques if the inserter is used versus not. Uh, it, we know that the levonorgestrel IUD inserters are usually long enough to reach the fundus in a postpartum uterus, whereas a typical Paragard or similar IUD inserter is not. Um, and there actually is a dedicated postpartum copper IUD inserter that is not marketed in this country. It it's, has extremely limited availability anywhere in the world at this point, but it is both longer and stiffer and meant to be used more easily in that setting. But we don't have really any idea if it is better than just using an instrument or some other way of inserting. And there's actually a study that was recently published using Kaiser data with Susan Reed, who's also at the University of Washington as one of the co-authors. And it actually showed slightly lower rates of expulsion in patients who were breastfeeding versus patients who were not breastfeeding, which was interesting. And it's really the largest study to date, including uh, levonorgestrel IUDs. And this study had a majority of levonorgestrel IUDs. And their expulsion rates were really similar, showing 10% expulsion by five years with placement in the first zero to three days. And then about 4% uh, with insertion from three days to six weeks. And then expulsion rates of about 3% or so for six weeks to four. 14 weeks postpartum. And then their data also included interval insertions for that comparator. And it was about 5%. So really right in there with expulsion rates. Yeah, no, I mean, that's actually really encouraging data, I think, overall from an expulsion rate perspective. And Dr. Prager, I know sort of you're selling us now on like, this seems like it's worthwhile to do. Let's get these post partum IUDs in place. Um, but before we do any sort of contraception, you're always looking at your CDC app for those medical eligibility criteria. Um, and I know we talked about contraindications earlier, but then what do we need to remember about the MEC for particular patients who may have some condition that contraindicates or makes us think more or twice about an IUD? Yeah, thanks for bringing this up. And I do think that that app can and should be used quite frequently when thinking about contraception in the postpartum period. And you looking at that app, unless somebody has an infected uterus, which is the only category four indication really for IUD insertion in the immediate postpartum period, they're all category one and two. And so really there's no medical differentiation that needs to be made between those two categories. And at any point, whether it's 10 minutes, whether it's two days, whether it's two weeks, whether it's two months, they're always category one or two. So really the CDC's answer is put in an IUD if a patient wants an IUD, unless they have an infected uterus. I wanted to ask a little bit about method of placement. And so what are some of the ways that we can put in a postpartum IUD? And then also, you know, do you have a favorite way of doing it and why? Yeah. And so here's where we get to the tricky part with a podcast, which is describing procedures. But I, 
I do think everyone can visualize this well. So there are really three methods. You can use the inserter that an IUD comes in. You can use an instrument like a ring forcep or a Kelly placental forcep, which is a little bit longer. And so if it's available, it might be preferable. Or you can simply use your hand. I would say just of those three, my personal bias is definitely not to use your hand because it is a much larger instrument than either of the other two things I mentioned and is going to be more painful for patients. So some of the original studies looked at differences in expulsion rates between instrument versus hand insertion, which were not different, but they did not report at all about pain, which just makes me feel badly for those patients. But you know, with the inserter, as I already mentioned before, if you're placing a copper IUD, that inserter is frankly not going to be long enough to get to the fundus. So not useful for a post-placental placement. And then even with the levonorgestrel IUDs, they're all a bit too flexible sometimes for certain uteruses to actually get to the fundus. So my preference really is to use an instrument for any of the IUDs. Okay. And sort of knowing that too, that you like the use of the instruments, um, or even just as we're trying to reach learners who are doing this for the first time, um, or folks who want to do this in the community or those who want to teach to do this better, what are the sort of tips and tricks that you've seen that help you get this place successfully? Yeah. Thanks for asking that. And the first thing that I always like folks to do is to put a ring forcep on the anterior lip of the cervix at the end of the delivery. And that really helps to guide the IUD when you're trying to place it. And it's, at least in the United States, the vast majority of our patients have anesthesia. And so it wouldn't be uncomfortable as opposed to putting a hand in the uterus, which even with <laughs> anesthesia can still be uncomfortable. Um, and then once the IUD is in the instrument and you place it within the lower uterine segment, then you can actually let go of the ring forcep that's on the cervix and place your hand instead on the fundus of the uterus. And to me, this is really the key event of a postpartum IUD insertion is to have the non-dominant hand on the fundus. And then that allows you to aim your instrument holding the IUD directly towards your hand, which is on the fundus. And actually for most patients, even with larger body habitus, you can still feel with your abdominal hand when the IUD in the instrument is at the fundus inside of the uterus and not perforate the uterus. That placement on the fundus is really, really key. And then the second thing that I would say is to achieve that angle to get the IUD to the fundus, think about dropping your wrist that's holding the IUD. Think about dropping your shoulder because the angle is really directly towards the abdominal wall, almost towards the umbilicus, as opposed to kind of a more horizontal placement towards the head in a patient who is not pregnant. And then finally, what I would say is when the IUD is at the fundus, open the instrument and move that instrument laterally off to the side of the uterus before gently removing it and just be conscious of where the strings are so that you don't pull the IUD back out with your instrument. And I guess the last tip that I would say is be really careful cutting the strings at the external os or pre-cut the strings before even placing the IUD so that you don't accidentally dislodge or remove your IUD when you're trying to trim the strings. And then I wanted to also ask, you know, let's say you don't use the ring forceps or the ring forceps aren't for some reason on your delivery tray. What if you're like using your inserter or I know you don't like this, but what if you're using your hand or what if the patient's having a C-section? 
If you're going to use the inserter, one trick is actually to pre-deploy the IUD because you're, you don't need a narrow diameter to get through a postpartum cervix or to get through a hysterotomy. So there's kind of no point in having a loaded IUD. So just have it deployed or use, you know, then you're using the inserter simply to guide the IUD up to the top of the fundus through a hysterotomy or through a cervix. That would be really my best trick with the inserter. And then if you are going to use your hands, I think it's a good idea to change your gloves just because it's not sterile doing a delivery. And it's also probably not sterile in the uterus at that point, but you might as well try. And then, as I said before, pre-cut the strings because you really don't want to accidentally dislodge that IUD. Copper IUD strings tend to be approximately 10 centimeters long. And so that's about the length that I aim for with other IUDs. And then I hold the IUD between my index and my middle finger. And then that way I can use my those fingers like an instrument and just open them and again, slide my hand off laterally and try not to disrupt the strings as I'm pulling my hand out. And you asked about transcesarean placement. I think using an instrument, using a hand, using a uh, an inserter are all viable options for uh, at the time of a cesarean delivery. The hand is not going to be uncomfortable. My preference would be, again, probably using an instrument and definitely pre-cutting strings because you don't want to have the hugely long strings on the levonorgestrel IUDs that you're trying to tuck through a cervix. Pre-cut them short place the IUD, and then gently use a ring forcep to orient the strings into the cervix. Don't really try to tuck them down because again, you might dislodge the IUD that way. Phenomenal. I can visualize this all happening right now. This is great. Well, of course, Dr. Prager, it doesn't end at just the insertion of the IUD. Um, we need to see these patients back for follow-up care and ensure that the IUD, I guess, one stayed in place or kind of, again, making sure that patients get the postpartum care that they need on top of it. So what do you do in terms of following patients up for string checks, if you will, and where do we go from there if we're not seeing the IUD? One of the things that I do is warn all of the patients that as their uterus is involuting and getting smaller, those strings might get longer. And so if they are noticing those strings at all, I want them to immediately call me and come in so that I can trim the strings because patients have definitely just accidentally removed their IUDs while wiping because the uterus does a lot of its involution quite quickly. I try to see those patients back one to two weeks post-delivery so that I can do my initial string trimming if the strings are visible. If the strings are not visible at all, then I like to do one ultrasound just to verify that the IUD is still in the uterus. Once I have assessed that the IUD is still in the uterus, I reassure the patient that the function of the IUD is not changed in any way by the strings being in the vagina or not being in the vagina. And I re-counsel, hopefully I've already mentioned this at the time of the original consenting, re-counsel that it might be slightly more challenging to remove the IUD if the strings are not visible, but they don't need to have recurrent... Uh, ultrasounds to verify the presence of the IUD in their uterus. And then when they come back for their six-week visit, oftentimes I need to retrim those strings, even if I've trimmed them at one to two weeks. Thank you so much again for coming onto this podcast, Dr. Prager, because this was really helpful, I think, for me and definitely for our listeners to hear a little bit more about IUD placement after delivery. Thank you for inviting me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks again. All right, everyone. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Kriag's Over Coffee.
if you like this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go on to your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, or if you love the show, head on over to Patreon, patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. You can find show notes for this show and all of our other shows on our website, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Finally, if you have a correction for this episode or any of our previous episodes, you want to say hello to us or to Dr. Prager, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. It looks like we've got a great opportunity from our friends at Rosh Review for our chief residents who are studying for their board exams. So Rosh Review is partnering with us to give away some ABOG qualifying exam QBanks, which involves 3,000 questions that can help you guys study either for the qualifying exam or just for your CREOGs. This is a $650 value, so it's an awesome package. And definitely as you're trying to study for those written boards, answering questions is the biggest thing, I think, to try and get prepared. So we think this is an awesome opportunity and we want you to get signed up. So the way to get signed up is to go onto our website at www.creogsovercoffee.com and answer the Rosh Review question of the week for our most recent episode. Once you answer that question at the bottom of the answer explanation page, you'll see another button to sign up for the giveaway. So sign up for the giveaway there and Rosh Review will announce the winners the following Friday. So we hope you take the opportunity to go onto the website, answer the Rosh Review question of the week and see if you win this ABOG qualifying exam QBank package.